you'd please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, and we're starting chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Today is a really happy day. It's It's a testimonial day. It's a day of testimonies. It's a day of remembering what God has done. We're going to, by God's grace, hear a testimony from God's word about his saving power in Titus 3, 1 through 7. Um, then we're going to hear, Keziah uh, 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 is going to remind us uh, of God's saving work in her life, what God has been doing in her life. And, and, then, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, which is a great day of remembering the, the sacrifice that Christ made for you and me. So it's a, it's a day of remembering, it's a day of testimony. Um, we're first going to look at this testimony from the Word in Titus 3. There's two major parts um, to communicate a singular truth, I think, in this, in this chapter, or verses 3. And the truth is that God's overabundant kindness and goodness towards you towards me, it's the reason why we should be compassionate toward unbelievers. God's overabundant kindness, his overabundant goodness toward you and me is the reason why we should be compassionate toward unbelievers. Um, First, he's going to present, we're going to read this here, he's going to present us with a reminder in verses 1 and 2. You'll see that there. And then he's going to give us um, a reason, verses 3 through, through 7. And there's two more reminders contained in there for why we should obey the command of verses 1 and 2. So in all, there's three things to remember. We remember to show kindness to all people. That's verses 1 and 2. Second, we remember our former life, our life outside of Christ. That's verse 3. And then we're going to look at a reminder in verses 4 through 7 of what God did. And, and hopefully then come to the conclusion that we should show kindness and goodness toward, toward others, not based on what they deserve, but on, on, on what God has done for you and me. So let's pray, and then we're going to read verses 1 and 2. God, you do all things well. Not only do you model the perfect life, the perfect love, in your life you did something. You died in Christ for, you, for us, making us new, empowering us with your call to, to be ambassadors. And God, I, I pray that we would leave here so overwhelmed with joy at the work that Christ has done in us that we would do the hard things, the things that in our flesh we, we say, I can't do that. I can't love that person. I can't show kindness. God, by your spirit, may we see and, and respond in faith and hope. May we be lights. May our, our lives be lights of, of your truth. Help me, God. I need help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the first reminder, the the command, verses 1 and 2. 
Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them, so Paul's talking to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's what the word of God says. So that's the, the first reminder is to show unnatural kindness, to show unnatural kindness towards all people. There's, there's two areas where we're reminded to show ki- kindness, two kind of general areas that Paul, that Paul gives us. Um, the first is to leaders, and, and the clear implication is that these are unbelieving leaders these are, or, or leaders outside of the church, uh, rulers and authorities, maybe in the government, maybe in the city. And then, and that's in verse one. And then the second is um, to show kindness to all people. I, I think we need to admit that as we read those commands, um, if we take them seriously, they're extremely hard. Extremely hard to, to hear. Perfect courtesy, to be gentle, to submit. And, and you know, I think when I first read that, I thought, well, sure, like a quick reading, like, well, sure, I can do this. God calls me to do it, I can do it. But then when you really press in and you, you think about what, li- you know, what living life is like, and we live in a world where things are not perfect and leaders are, are cruel and, and people are rude to us and we have bullies and we have, you know, this is a hard command. It's not something we naturally want to do. So much so that I think, you know, we're, we're more prone to think of all the exceptions to obeying this, this kind of command. Yeah, 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 it's true, but, and then, but, but what about? And so we spend a lot of time thinking of the exceptions. And I understand that, and, and, and there certainly are there is an exception, especially when it comes to submitting to, say, a leader, um, uh, an authority. Um, we know that we submit to God first. I, I, I serve the king of kings, and so the king of kings takes ultimate authority over, over all of my life, no matter what a ruler or an authority says or tells me to do or treats me. However, I don't want to forget this command and I don't want, to press, don't want to forget to press into this command for the sake of maybe my pride or, or my, selfish, my selfishness. We should submit to rulers and authorities. It is absolutely throughout the Bible, with the examples that I can find in the New Testament from Paul, Romans 13, um, uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Jesus even, talking about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, the general understanding is that we respect and we submit to our earthly leaders. We don't worship them. You know, Jesus, when he, he, was, he was asked... Who, who do you pay taxes to? And he held up a coin. A coin. And it was a Roman coin, I think. And, and, and we can see these coins today. They, they still exist. It says on the coin, Caesar is Lord. Or uh, essentially giving Caesar the, the, the quality of deity. 
And Jesus held up that coin and he said, you can obey Caesar. We worship and serve God first, and yet we understand that in the world that we live in, we um, are under leaders, and God has put them there, and we should do our best to submit to these, these leaders. We should be kind to people in the community as well. You see that in verse 2. And that's a high command. Quar- don't quarrel. Show perfect courtesy. These are the kind of commands that, that, can, only be, that can only be followed if I die to myself. My pride, my rights. I've got to, something in me has to die in order for that kind of a courtesy they, these, 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 these commands become very challenging when we consider all the what-ifs. And we're going to keep thinking about these as we go. So remember to show kindness to leaders and to all people. Submit, be gentle. But verse 3 is very connected to verses 1 and 2. It's going to help qualify what this reminder is. So remember, verses 1 and 2 is the command, and 3 through 7 is, are, is, is helping us understand why we should obey this and even how, and even under the, you know, the situation we might live in that make this challenging. Let's read verse 3 together. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's not a glamorous reminder. That's our second reminder. Remember your former life. So rem- here's the reminder to show kindness. And in order to do that, you need to think about who you once were. Remember your former life. Before coming to Christ, and he says we here, um, at least Paul's talking about himself and Titus, and I think by implication we can include the Cretans, you and me, we, if we were outside of Christ at one point, we were this people, by nature, this people, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, passing our days in malice, hated, like hate. Hateful toward others, hated by. So it has implications for anyone who is really outside of Christ. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. And this doesn't mean we're as evil as we could be. We we always, you know... um, the joke is, you know, whenever you're arguing with somebody about certain things, as soon as you bring up Hitler, the argument's lost because that's the extreme, right? Like, well, I'm not Hitler. We're not all as evil as we could be. How, however, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. There's an example of that. I, I was, you have to forgive me, I was on Twitter or X. I think we got a picture. It's up here. I don't know if you can read that. I don't know if this is real, but I can relate to it. It just says, I smashed my TV in front of 30 guests at my son's birthday party because of the Huskers. My wife just took our crying kids. This is really sad, and if it's true. And, and it said they're spending the week at my mom's house. This team has ruined my marriage. I can't handle it anymore. I'm no longer a fan. Now, that's foolish. 
But the real foolishness is, could you put it back up there? He says, I'm assuming, I smashed my TV and ruined the party because of the Huskers. They caused me to do it. They made me do it. They're terrible. All those turnovers yesterday. The Huskers weren't the problem. You're the problem, dude. I'm the problem. We can live in a world full of conditions where people are unfair and unjust, but at the end of the day, I'm the problem. I'm the fool. I'm the one that's led astray to think that the Huskers justify my reasons to smash the TV and to cause my wife to leave. That's led astray. That's foolish. I'm the problem. By nature, we are under sin. And that's our former life. And it doesn't have to always, you know, that looks extreme, right? But we can be fools in a religious sense. Look at, look at the example, you know, Martin Luther said, we're beggars. That's, that's our condition, we're beggars. And, and, and I think we're beggars because... Um, one of the one of the problems that we have in life is we we assume that you know that's an, a bad example. But what about in a religious sense? We can still be fools. Jesus told a, a parable in Luke eighteen, and it's going to be on the screen. I don't have time for you to turn in your Bibles there, but Luke eighteen nineteen through fourteen, he told an example of a different kind of foolishness, a good looking foolishness, a prideful foolishness, and it's from this 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 Pharisee, which is a religious leader, and it's a story of him and this other guy who's a tax collector, and and if you picture these two kinds of guys in that in in Jesus's day you've got the the most religious guy like a pastor and then you've got the 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 crummiest guy the the guy that's working for the your opposing government the tax collector and he's taking you and so you you should if you read this you you should think of the tax collector as somebody that I don't like and and the Pharisee as somebody that oh I should like this guy In, in Luke 18 Jesus says he told a parable Um, Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And this is what he said in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. What a guy. And here's the contrast. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' conclusion is he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified, the one that we should hate, the one that we should not see, rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The the point that Jesus is making, if you're you're a fool, if if you're living a life that, that, that believes your righteousness is making you right before God. I fast twice a week. I give my money away. That's a different kind of foolishness, and we don't necessarily maybe think about it that way. 
because it looks really good. But that's also of something that's a former life. That's, that's something that we do outside of the saving work of Christ. We think that we're good enough to, to earn salvation. There's a couple things that Paul, I think, really wants us to benefit. There's two benefits in remembering this verse 3. Why do I want to remember my life? It's gritty, it's ugly. I don't like to remember being a fool. Two benefits for us. First, I think it's a, it, it helps us um, see the nature of the world more clearly. If I remember my sinful condition, and this is connecting verses 1 through 2 to verse 3, their first reminder to verse 3, I think it shows us that, we're, that, that the kindness we're called to show isn't natural. It's not normal. And in fact, the world that, that, um, that we live in is, is a world in which is full of people who are like us, who like we, like we were. There's sin in the world. There's foolishness. It wreaks havoc frequently. So it helps us in that sense to remember that the, the call that I'm, that I'm called to in verses 1 and 2, the reminder I'm called to in verse 1 and 2, is going to be hard. You're called to show kindness to people who you once were, you were once a fool. And so we, we, we live in a world there for where, there's, where we're called to show kindness to maybe a school bully. Or, or to a boss who is unjust, or to people that cheat us. The world, or people who, who are outside of Christ, they, they view the world differently. They're not seeing God as, as sovereign over all, the one we answer to. That affects the way you view human dignity. It affects the way that you view integrity. If I get to def- decide who, what is right and wrong... I can treat you wrong and call it right. And we're called to, to step into that and show kindness and dignity to, toward people that are, um, might, might not show that. So that's the first thing. Remember that, that because you were once this way, remember that when you're called to, to show this kind of character qualities towards people in the outside world, that it's not going to be easy. The second thing is, though, I think Paul wants us to help us see that this is going to help you see his mercy more clearly. And this is the clear thing that Paul wants us to show. So you remember it to see that, to, to have a, you know, don't take off the rose-colored glasses. See that this is going to be hard. But also, remember your past to see how great God's mercy is. See how kind God was to you when you didn't, and, and you didn't deserve a bit of it. He who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has forgive, been forgiven much loves much. And he wants us to realize you've been forgiven so much. So much. So this isn't necessarily, verse 3 isn't necessarily a command. It, it does imply that you're changed, right? He is talking about a transformation that happens to you. But I think the main emphasis Paul is bringing up our past is to remember the change of mercy, the, 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 the gap of mercy. My, my sin over here, God's kindness over here, it wasn't as if I was in any way worthy or deserving of the kind of kindness that God showed 
showed me. So we don't want to remember this. We don't look at this in a vacuum. We remember this in, in the light of what God has done. So we show kindness to others. We're helped in showing kindness to others by remembering our sinful past. And now, as we think about our sinful past, let's look and see and remember God's incredible love for us. That's the third thing we remember. We remember God's incredible love for us. This is verses 4 through 7. Again, here's the contrast. We were once fools, hating one another, verse 4, but, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So yes, remember that you were a sinner. Remember your past, but put that reminder up next to the mercy, the reminder that God saved you. And there's two, again, two really important aspects of God's salvation that we need to realize in verses four through seven. Two things that we need to see that will help us hopefully lift our eyes and just be blown away. How did he do this? Why did he do this? The first is, is a why question. Why? The first aspect is that God saved you compassionately. Compassionately. If you think about this, you know, salvation of, uh, as, a, as a gift, even though uh, we, we know gifts are free, right? We talk about that. But we need to remember that this gift was given in kindness and love. I have two kids, an older daughter and a younger son, and when they're playing with toys and my daughter steals something from him or she, she's got something and he wants to play and we would like her to learn to share and so we tell her, hey, Evie, can you give Benny a toy? And she might give him the toy. She might not give it happily. We're working on that. She gives the toy but it might be begrudgingly. What was God thinking when he saved you? If there's a thought, if there's a thought, the smallest thought in your mind that God was begrudging or hesitant in giving you salvation, you got to drive that out of your mind. This is how he saved you. Verse 4, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Not begrudging. Not begrudging at all. That word loving kindness is a combined word in the Greek of love and man. You could understand it literally as love for mankind. When God's love for mankind appeared, he saved us. No begrudgingness. No unwillingness. Happy, joyful, kind, loving. Sometimes we think that God is unloving. 
and we think that Jesus is the, the kind, the, the kind, there's actually lots of errors that have come up in, the church, in church history regarding that. God is the mean, unloving judge, and Christ is the nice advocate. That's not true. God loved you. It says right here, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This, is, this appearance is the same one as we talked about last week in Titus 2.11. The entrance of Jesus Christ into the world, not just his, his, his arrival, but his full work. His death on the cross for you and me, substituting his life for your life, his life for my life. Dying for us, paying for our sins on the cross, raising again. That's the type of appearance that we're talking about. We weren't good, we weren't kind, we were fools, and yet, God loved us. His loving kindness to humanity appeared. There's one more way um, that we can see the compassion of God in this passage, and it's in those words, mercy, in verse in verse 5, right? Verse 5. And then in, later on he calls it grace. A justifying of by his grace. A common way for us to talk about mercy is that mercy is not getting something that you deserve. I deserve judgment. I deserve hell. I'm a fool. I don't get what I deserve. And a common way to think about grace is getting what you don't deserve. Namely, life, salvation, Kindness from God. But we don't even have to look at those definitions because we can understand them perfectly well from here. Look at this. Mercy is the opposite of salvation by my works of righteousness. See that there in verse 5? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. So that means... I am contributing. I am the one who is earning this. I'm the one who is, is getting this salvation. Not by that, but by mercy. Him. Him extending his hands and saving us undeservedly. So, that, so this means, his mercy means that when he, when he saves us, he doesn't look to what we can offer. He doesn't look to the good that we did. We're fools. He just saves. And this is helpful, I think, especially when you think about this in contrast with our former life in verse 3. There's not really anything you could offer. So if you remember that, that, that tax collector in the Pharisee in Luke 18, you know, that, that, that Pharisee, that's a classic case, a classic example of trying to be saved by works of righteousness. You remember what he said? I'm not like other men. I'm, extortion, uh, I'm not like an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. He's saying, my works are good enough. It's not like that. Those didn't save you. God's mercy saved you and me. The goodness... God, out of love and goodness and mercy, saves, not by our works or our good deeds. It's a compassionate love. God 
saved us compassionately. And then the second aspect of this is God saved us comprehensively. One of the ways that God, God's word works is that it tells us what happens when we trusted in Christ. So much time we actually spend studying the word saying, what happened? How did this work? How did he, how did he take me from darkness to light? And we see that in verses 5 through 6. He's going to explain to us what God did. He saved us, look at 5 through 6, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And here's the explanation. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, our Savior. So how did he save us? He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit, who the Spirit was poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus. So here we see that not only is he compassionate, but he comprehensively saves, and he did it as a Trinitarian work. We see this Trinitarian work of salvation. God, perfectly God, existing in three persons, and yet one God, singular saving act by the, in the Trinitarian work of God. God extends mercy. The Spirit washes and renews me. The Son is the one who poured the Spirit out through his perfect sacrifice, making us right with God. And not only that, we see a beautiful picture of us being grafted into the whole storyline of the Bible. This, this pouring out that's talked about in, in here is, is, a, is a clear reference to Joel chapter 2, 28, that God's promising a time when he's going to one day make us right with him. And he promises in Joel 2, 28, it shall come to pass, this is God speaking through Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. But then if you fast forward to the book of Acts, so that's an Old Testament reference hundreds of years before the arrival of Christ. You go to Acts chapter 2 and you can see that Peter quotes that exact same verse that exact same place in Joel on Pentecost. But Peter does us one better. He, in verse uh, 33, he actually says that the pouring out of the Spirit is an act of Jesus himself. So God is saying in the Old Testament, I'm going to be pouring out my Spirit, and here we have God in the flesh, the one pouring out the Spirit. In Acts 2.33, Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out on you. So he's referring to that moment at Pentecost where the Spirit came down and sealed us. This, he says, is what you are seeing and hearing. So we see Paul making all of these references to to help see that that not only is he working in us through his his mercy, the, the mercy of God, the washing of the Spirit, the work of the Son... It's perfectly in line with his whole biblical storyline. This isn't an un, un, shouldn't be an unexpected event. God in Christ poured the Spirit out on us. What's the purpose of the outpouring in, in verses 5 and 6? We see that the fundamental, the, the foundational work of the Spirit that, that Paul is talking about is to wash and renew us. 
make us right with God. The washing and renewing work of the Spirit. This reminds, I think should remind us of, of Ezekiel 36. I think it's going to be on the screen. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It's the spirit, the spirit, the Holy Spirit working in us to cleanse us, to renew us. So our salvation, it's an act of God's mercy, it's made possible by the sacrifice of Christ, it's secured by the Spirit's work within us. God saves us comprehensively. He saves us comprehensively. He does it by justifying us. That's another word that Paul uses in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification is a very Paul-like term. It's a Pauline term. And it's virtually synonymous with the word used earlier for save in terms of our, our understanding of the work of God. It, it, makes, it makes clear, and this is a very helpful thing, it makes very clear for us that the salvation that God did, the, the, the work that he did, is not held by a thread that could snap at any moment. It's not uncertain to be justified with God means that you and God are, are good. There's no condemnation. You are secure. You're not a false step away from damnation. You're justified. It's been paid. It's, it's, it's over. I'm secure. We're justified by his grace. And then finally, he saves us comprehensively by making us heirs, heirs of eternal life. So not only am I saved, is the spirit at work, the one who, who, who is in me, um, not only am I justified, I've got a promise. He's made me an heir. So it's just building, it's building upon itself. This saving work is securing me and I have eternal hope. I am an heir according to the hope of eternal life. That's a great testimony, isn't it? A testimony of how faithful God is to undeserving people like you and me. And so then, it's on the basis of this salvation, on the basis of this kindness that we're called now to go into the world. I've been given this great kindness, this great gift from God, undeserved. He saved me when I didn't deserve it. He saved me when I was a fool. And it's on the basis of that kindness, I now have a reason to go show kindness. And so I think the call for this is to, if, if I'm going to go out there and show kindness, I've got to keep this on my mind. What has he done? What has he done in my life? Let Christ be the one who is motivating, who is, who is your model, his, his love for me, his power working in me to show kindness 
and courtesy, even in the hard things, especially in the hard things, to show, uh, to, to, to show the love of Christ. Let Christ be on your mind. Let him be on your mind. Let's consider him, what he did, in, as we consider these command to love others. I'm going to pray now, and then Keziah is going to come up and share about a testimony about God's work in her life. God, we thank you so much for what you have done. You have saved us wonderfully. We're not deserving, but you, in love, saved us. May we trust your grace. May we keep you in mind as we hear these calls to follow you even into the hard things. In Christ's name I pray, amen.